Support for Industry Focus comes from our friends at My ID Care Identity Protection. The recent Equifax breach has made it more important than ever to protect yourself from the risk of identity theft. 25 million Americans rely on My ID Care, and right now, they are offering 15% off their plans for our listeners. Go to myidcare.com/fool to get covered. Welcome to Industry Focus, the podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market every day. It's Monday, November 27th, and we're talking about five pervasive money myths that are just plain wrong. Of course, you probably could tell that already since I called them myths, but I really liked that as a lead-in, so we're going to roll with it. I'm your host, Michael Douglas, and I am joined by Matt Frankel. Matt, how was your Thanksgiving? Uh, just great. I'm trying to get back in the swing of things. So it's, it's always tough after a long weekend. <laughs> yeah, I think we all had a little trouble waking up this morning. <laughs> so before we hop into these myths, uh, I'm going to mention some resources on the episode, as you can imagine. If you want any, any individual one, that's great. If you want them all, just tell me that you want everything from the Money Myth episode. Either way, shoot me a note at industryfocus at fool.com. I'll be happy to provide that content. We publish a lot of great content on fool.com, and I want to make sure that, as podcast listeners, you're aware of some of the best stuff out there. All righty. So with that, let's hop right in. Myth number one, buying a home is always a good investment. Yeah, anytime you hear the word always in a financial statement, it's odds are it's somewhat of a myth. Um it's important to know the difference between investing in real estate and buying a home. If you buy an investment property where someone else is paying you rent, you're using that to pay down the mortgage, pay the bills, you're not paying anything out of pocket to own it, that's an investment and can actually be a pretty lucrative one over time. On the other hand, buying a house is, it's a home. It's In a lot of cases, it's more expensive to buy than to rent. Um, it's not true by me. Uh, I know in a lot of metropolitan areas, I think up at full HQ, it's in a kind of high high cost market, so it's a little expensive to buy. Um, but anyway, uh, homes have historically appreciated by about 3% annually over time. This is not a great investment return. Um, stocks generally, over long periods of time, return 9% to 10%. Bonds even are in the 4% to 5% range historically over long periods of time. So it's kind of a fallacy that it's a great investment. There's the, the argument that you're building up equity as you pay down the mortgage, which is somewhat true if you're not paying that much more to own the house than you would to rent a, a comparable home. Um, if you are, you're far better off you know, investing the difference. Having said that, there are other reasons to buy than just financial. Um, for example, in the neighborhood I live in, there's simply nowhere, no homes available for rent. Um, so there are reasons to, there are very good reasons to buy. Michael and I are both homeowners, right. but but the, but we should say that in full disclosure. But for an investment, it's not one of those reasons. Yeah, and I think this is one of the key mistakes that a lot of people make when they're thinking about home buying is that they assume that it is financially better always than renting. And the fact of the matter is that owning your own home comes with a lot of benefits that aren't financial, potentially. There's something nice about being able to color 
things, really any color you want indoors. There are benefits to knowing that you're not going to get kicked out next year because the landlord decided that they were going to sell the property that you were renting. There's the benefit of knowing that your costs are generally going to be about the same year to year. Of course, real estate taxes change. There are other things that change too. But generally speaking, you know your mortgage is pretty much going to be the same as long as you're on a fixed rate mortgage. But the fact of the matter is that most of those reasons aren't really explicitly financial. It was interesting, actually, when Haley and I were that Haley's my wife, by the way. When we were talking to realtors about buying our first house, we received some literature that basically there was this one piece of paper that said five great financial reasons to buy a home, and three of them weren't financial at all. And I was just kind of flabbergasted because I just thought, come on, right? Like, like let's just be honest and upfront about the fact that there are these sort of non-financial reasons to buy a home, and that's totally fine. Yeah, definitely. Um, like um, my wife and I, we have two dogs, um, which severely limits your options for renting. Which anybody who's tried to rent, yes, with especially with a, a pit bull, like we had when we bought our house, um, anyone who's tried to rent a place with a pit bull can tell you it's not easy. Um, so things like that definitely make buying a preferable option in many cases. Um, like we have children, we want them to grow up in the same place without the fear of having to move every year or two if the landlord sells our house. Mm -hmm. So things like that are, you know, reasons to buy. I do not, we, I don't recommend spending more than your maximum budget because you think it's a good investment is kind of where this breaks down to. A lot of people buy as much house as they could possibly afford because they think that's the best way to invest, um, which isn't true. You're better off buying what you need and investing your extra money either in stocks or in bonds or mutual funds or, you know, something like that. Exactly. Now, we've done a very kind of lightweight look at this. If you want more detail on this, uh, Fool.com's managing editor, Anand Chakvalu, my boss, actually wrote a piece pretty recently that really breaks down kind of the five numbers you need to look at to decide whether buying a house makes better financial sense than renting. If you're pondering that decision, or heck, if you just want to think through it and kind of read a really good piece that can help you think through that in the future, shoot us an email at industryfocus.fool.com. I'll hook you up with the article. And that can really help you think through kind of how that might apply to you. All right, with that, let's head on over to myth number two. Retirees should always avoid stocks. This one is particularly potentially damaging because so many retirees are relatively short on money and stocks can help make a difference in retirement. Right. It's absolutely true that retirees should you know, scale back their exposure to stocks. Absolutely. Um, we're not saying that at all. I, I don't, I'm not recommending a retiree you know, have 80% of their money invested in the stock market. However, especially in a low interest rate environment like we're in right now, where bond yields are, you know, two or three percent if you're lucky, it can be tough to even keep up with inflation over time if all you're invested in are fixed income or even worse, cash investments. Um, you're going to have some volatility in stocks, that's true, but it's definitely a risk reward thing that's where the reward makes more sense. 
Yeah, and the fact of the matter is that good quality conservative dividend stocks provide a reasonably safe cushion. Now, dividend aristocrats, which we've talked about a few times here on the show, but just as a refresher, they are stocks that have raised their dividends at least once annually for at least the last 25 years. They're household names like Coca-Cola, Johnson & Johnson, companies that pretty much, well, not all of them, but generally a lot of people have heard of. Um, these are companies that, you know, theoretically you can get a 2 or a 3% dividend, pretty similar to what the bonds are paying right now. And potentially there's some capital appreciation as the actual stocks hopefully increase in value over time as well. Of course, you have to pick good businesses. Don't just search for the biggest yield. But there's an opportunity there for people who have a little bit more of a risk appetite. By the way, if anyone listening still needs the list of dividend aristocrats, drop us a note at industryfocus.fool.com. I shared this or an article about this uh, maybe a month or a month and a half ago, but anyone new or anyone who just didn't hear that episode, feel free to drop us a note. I'll be happy to send that along. There's also kind of a mini myth buried in this idea of stocks, which is that bonds are safe for retirees. And that's not always necessarily the case either. Yeah, well, there's a few reasons why this is a, a good mini-myth to you know debunk. First of all, bonds are like stocks in that there is a wide spectrum of risk within the asset class. I mean, like my, the dividend aristocrats Michael just mentioned and buying a stock like, I don't know, Netflix or even something newer and riskier. There's two. That's two different things in terms of risk. Mm-hmm. Um, also, bonds are not. <clears throat> there's two other forms of risk you need to know. There's always some level of default risk unless you're buying U.S. Treasuries, which Yield have the nothing. problem of yielding next to nothing. <laughs> right. Um, or as interest rates rise, the actual dollar value of your bonds can fall. Now, if you buy a bond that's paying three percent. For a thousand dollars, you're going to get your thirty dollar interest payment every year till it till it matures or till it's called. That's a given. That's not the risk. The risk is that as interest rates rise, investors can now buy bonds that are paying five percent or six percent or more. That thousand dollar face value of the bond can decline, which if you have to sell can be a big problem. Um, if you buy, say, a thirty year treasury and interest rates rise two or three percent. You could your the face value of that bond could be down to six or seven hundred dollars, not a thousand, pretty easily. So that's a big risk. Um, and again, generally bonds are not as volatile as stocks, and your interest payments are much more secure than say the dividends of even the most secure dividend stocks. But there is that default risk and the interest rate risk that investors definitely need to be aware of. Particularly given that interest rates over the coming few years look poised to actually increase. Now, if you asked any serious um, stock market watcher three years ago, they would have probably said the same thing. But it looks like the, the Fed is actually beginning to hike interest rates. And so it looks like we're going to head toward a higher interest rate environment. Not necessarily a high interest rate environment by any stretch, but higher than it's been. We've been in a historically low interest rate environment pretty much since the Great Recession. All right, so with that, let's head over to myth number three. You get what you pay for. So the other way of putting that is, if you spend more, you'll get more, like you pay up for quality. Now, of course, that's true in the consumer world, and that's one of the reasons why this is such a pervasive and powerful myth. 
generally speaking, more expensive shoes are better quality. Same with cookware, same with TVs, as I just learned. <laughs> but, <laughs> but the fact is, it's just not necessarily true in investing. Right. People have this... Um, it's it, the hedge fund. The um, I guess the glamorization of hedge, fund, hedge funds over the past couple of decades has kind of you know perpetuated this myth. In that those are some of the highest fee investments in the world, and people just think that because people are billionaires and investing in hedge funds that they're making tons and tons of money, and that if they find some high fee investment like that, they will too. Unfortunately, it doesn't work that way. Um, most people um, would be better off just sticking with a low-cost index fund, which charges next to nothing. Um, even actively managed mutual funds, for the most part, underperform passive index funds because of their higher fees. Now, their fees aren't comparable to, say, a hedge fund, which will charge you you know, 2% of assets plus 20% of your gains. Mm -hmm. But even if you're talking about, say, a 1% expense ratio with a mutual fund, versus a S&P index fund that's charging 0.05%, that eats away at your gains over time. Yeah, in a really big and meaningful way. Actually, Warren Buffett pretty famously ended up in a bet against uh, a hedge fund guy. It was a 10-year bet with a million dollars on the line, basically saying, hey, would a Vanguard uh, index fund beat whatever hedge funds this guy picked. And while the bet hasn't quite wrapped up yet, it is very close to, and Warren Buffett is winning by a landslide. <laughs> so passive in, in indexing really does, generally speaking, tend to work. Right. There's, there's some bias to that bet. Um, it, it was tied to, um, but the, the general idea is that it was tied to about 200 different hedge funds. The guy he bet against picked five baskets of what are called funds of funds. Right that are each a bunch of different hedge funds contributing to the pot. So it was really over 100 hedge funds that are contributing to this bet. And Buffett's idea is that some of the hedge funds are going to outperform the market over time, some of them are going to underperform. But because they're charging these hefty fees, by definition, the good, the, the gains and the losses will cancel each other out, and you'll just be left paying the fees. So you're better off just not paying fees and not doing anything and just investing in the overall market. Right. And if you want to learn more about what fees could mean for your portfolio, I, I actually wrote a piece a couple of years ago on exactly this topic. It was titled, How 12 Minutes Could Save You $60,000. And the punchline is basically, this is strictly by reducing your investing fees. If you want to learn more about that article, drop us a note, industryfocus.fool.com. Okay, so we'll talk about the remaining two myths in a second. But first, let's hear from our sponsor. Support for Industry Focus comes from our friends at MyID Care Identity Protection. The recent Equifax breach exposed the most sensitive and personal data of half the U.S. adult population. Likely some of your most sensitive and valuable personal information was compromised. This puts you at increased risk of identity theft. You're also at increased risk during the holidays as online shopping places your personal information at greater risk. Billions of financial transactions online and in stores are occurring and hackers are on the prowl to steal identities, always looking for vulnerabilities and opportunities. My ID Care provides concierge-style service and has an incredible 100% success rate for identity recovery. My ID Care also covers all types of identity theft, from medical ID theft to child identity theft. They have you covered. With 24-7 monitoring of your information, you can join the 25 million Americans who trust My ID Care and spend your holidays celebrating instead of stressing. Our listeners can get 15% off by visiting myidcare.com slash 
fool. All right, so let's head on to our last two myths. Myth number four, you have to carry a balance to boost your credit score. And that's specifically talking about carrying a balance on your credit card month to month to boost that credit score. Yeah, there's some truth to this myth in, in the sense of the way it started, that you need to use your credit cards and your credit to maximize your credit score. That doesn't necessarily mean carrying a balance. That can mean you know, paying for every time you fill up your car with gas, paying with your credit card and just paying it off at the end of the month. Creditors definitely want to see you using your credit for obvious reasons. They want to know you can handle it responsibly. But you don't necessarily, you don't need to carry a balance to show them that you're doing that. And it's really easy for ba- credit card balances to get out of control really quick. And even if you just keep a small balance, the interest on credit cards is, you know, about three or four times what you'll pay on a mortgage or car loan. So you'll be paying a lot of a, a relatively high amount of interest even on a small amount of credit card debt. And it's just unnecessary to do this. Yeah, it's interesting. People often get the idea of utilization that is actually using debt in some way conflated with this idea that you have to be carrying um, that debt month to month. So with a credit card, basically, if you put some stuff on it, <laughs> maybe it's lunch or maybe it's dinner, maybe it's, as you mentioned, Matt, gas or something else, and then pay that off each month, you're doing, you're, you're achieving utilization of your credit card. You're using it. And so the credit bureaus will report that you are using credit. But yeah, carrying um, it doesn't on, do anything. In, the credit, in your credit report, there's two figures you'll see um, in each credit card listing. You'll see your, I bet your current balance and you'll see what's called the high balance, which is how much you've ever used. Not how, not necessarily your carry balance, just how high your balance has gotten. So through that, creditors can see that you're actively using your credit cards or that you have been using your credit cards. You don't need to actually have a current balance in order to, to do that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. And I, I will say, for the record, it is important to have debt for your credit score. When I bought my first car, I had no credit score and it was a lot harder for me to get a loan as a result. And so it's certainly a useful thing to have a credit score and to have carried some debt to do that. But you don't have to keep a credit card balance month to month to achieve that. And I think that's really the key thing to keep in mind. It's great to have a credit card. It is not a good idea, generally speaking, to carry a balance in your credit card. All right, so with that, let's head on over to myth number five. And this one, it's kind of a a different myth from the others because if people believe it, it might actually be in some ways better for them. But we'll get to that in a minute. Myth number five, Social Security is going broke. Yeah, this is one that I, in in all honesty, I asked Michael to include in this show because it's one of, (laughs) it it bothers me a lot just because of the sheer number of people especially the younger generation who believe it. Um, the reality is Social Security has nearly $3 trillion in reserves. That's enough that if we stop charging Social Security tax and did nothing else, could sustain the program for several years. Um, not only that, Social Security is actually running a surplus right now. Um, Social Security brought in, I think, about $35 billion more than it paid out last year Mm -hmm. and is expected to do the same over the next five or six years. It's beyond that where the problem is. So there's some truth to this myth in that eventually the number of retirees are going to grow and we're going to be paying out a little bit more. But Social Security is not close to broke right now. 
um, the latest forecasts say by 2034 is when it will run out of reserves. And keep in mind, there's still going to be payroll tax flowing into it. So worst case scenario, you'll see Social Security benefits have to be cut by a quarter. Social Security is not going completely broke or bankrupt or and it's not in or whatever the whatever people want to say these days. But <laughs> it's it's just not true. There's three almost three trillion dollars and growing in Social Security's reserves. Yeah, what's interesting about this issue is that, as you pointed out, even in the worst case scenario, which is that no one not Congress, not anybody else. Nobody figures out a way to kind of fix the system or to do things differently. And no one you know, does anything at all. Eventually, the reserves will run dry. That is true. That is definitely going to happen at some point. But even so, that would just necessitate a benefit cut. Now, of course, the benefit cut is a bad thing, to be clear, but it's not nearly as bad as Social Security going completely insolvent and stop and, and not paying out at all. That's just really not on the table. What's interesting about this is that, at least for me, and Matt, I think this is probably true for you too, I actually try to invest as if Social Security were going broke. Basically, my idea is to have enough money for retirement that I'm not dependent on Social Security, that I'm not thinking about Social Security, so that if whatever amount they're paying in benefits is gravy, it's icing on the cake, it's insert other food metaphor, where instead I can merely focus on you know living through my golden years and really enjoying them and not be concerned about what might happen with a funding mechanism or a cost of living adjustment for Social Security, but really have enough in my savings that that's just not a concern. Right. And this is kind of what Michael was talking about, how this could actually be a good myth. Sort of. Uh, in, in many ways. <laughs> Whereas if you believe it and think that Social Security, like I'm 35, if I believe Social Security is not going to be there when I retire, then I'm going, oh, no, I better save a lot more for my retirement and build up a nice nest egg, which is honestly what people should be doing anyway. So in many ways, this is a very good myth for in, in terms of the effect that it could have. Yeah, exactly. And if you're interested in learning more about um, Social Security and what the future holds for it and potential ways to try to mitigate or change what's going on right now and sort of what looks like you know, an inevitable deficit for Social Security, drop us a note, industryfocusatfull.com, and I'll be happy to send you some content around that from fool.com. All right, folks, that's it for this week's financial show. And of course, I mentioned a lot of different content. If you just want it all, shoot me a note, say, hey, I want all the content about the myths, and I will be happy to put that together for you. If you have questions or comments, you can also reach us at industryfocusatfull.com. We love, love, love hearing from listeners. That's why I ask you to email every week, because we want to hear from you. As always, people on the program may have interests in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. This show is produced by Austin Morgan. For Matt Frankel, I'm Michael Douglas. Thanks for listening and full on.